Today we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, um, we have three weeks left uh, of Lent, the season of Lent. And because we were going through the book of Revelation, we really didn't uh, take a lot of time uh, to, to, to do a specific series during the season of Lent. I look back uh, over the years and in the past, we've had actual Lenten uh, sermon series, but I chose to continue with Revelation. But I do want to do something special for these next three weeks. And what we're going to talk about is the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ over these three weeks. Uh, Today we'll talk about his life. Next week, his death, the crucifixion. And then uh, on Easter Sunday, we'll talk about the resurrection. But I'm going to try to do it from a little bit different uh, vantage point. And here's here's the approach that I, I want to take. When, whenever you come to a holiday or a special day or a particular subject in the Bible, uh, like the resurrection, uh, people will talk about what happened. What happened? Well, Jesus went into the grave and he was there three days or two days or whatever, came out of the grave and he was alive and the tombstone was rolled away. We talk about the what, which is history. It's the account of what happened. Or we will take a different approach. We'll say, let's talk about the resurrection that it happened. And that is apologetics. We, we use particular scriptures to prove as best we can that the resurrection was a historical fact, that it really did happen. But very often, I think, around the holidays and with these special occasions, we don't really think too much about why. Why the resurrection? And I'm going to try to tie this together with what we just finished in Revelation. Revelation is a book that tells us about the story of creation, the chaos that was introduced into the world, and the recreation of all things. And that was not plan B. That was God's plan all along. He wanted to create something beautiful, knowing that it would, in fact, go into ruin, but that out of the ruin, he would recreate something that could not have existed before had it not gone into ruin. Now, I know that's a lot to absorb, and here we are right at the beginning of the sermon. Dear me, where are we going with this? Uh, You'll understand as as we go. So what I've done today is I've put together three scriptures, and I'm going to ask you to read them out of your bulletin, and we are going to read these. Each one of them has a particular context, but I've taken three different scriptures from three different places so that we can talk about the life of Jesus Christ. So let's read together uh, in your bulletin. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The other day I was listening to a... um, an interview on NPR. It's very interesting. They were interviewing an author, and I think I, ca- I couldn't get 
the couldn't remember the details, but this author, I think he writes uh, books for children. But anyway, he is a very interesting guy. He's from England, uh, from Britain. And uh, he was talking about uh, his, his journey into becoming an author. And uh, so they were asking him a lot of questions about what it is to be an author. How do you get your inspiration? How do you write these stories? You know, what, what makes you, gives you ideas and things like that. And so he said that one of the things that he does and actually had on the interview, they had him play, uh, he's, he likes to play the piano, but he's an amateur. But he loves to play classical music, and he especially likes Chopin's etudes. Any of you familiar with the etudes of, uh, how many, there's 20, 29 or something like that? Uh, etudes of Chopin. So he's playing one of the ones that's very familiar. And, uh, and he, he said this, and it just jumped out at me. He said, I play the etudes uh, of Chopin. He said, rather poorly, and, and sounded good to me. I mean, I don't know. He, he could play them. Uh, but he said, I, I play them rather poorly, but I do it, listen to this, because in so doing, I'm able to participate in the genius of Chopin. You see, Chopin was a genius. These classical artists are geniuses. And by simply playing their music, you are able, or listening, but he was talking about playing, you're able to participate to some extent in the genius of Chopin. You're not Chopin, you're not as good as Chopin, but you're able to participate. And this is something that is at the very center of the Christian faith. The very center of the Christian faith is that God created man to participate with him in the creative endeavor. In creation. He made all this, then he told us to go out, to multiply, be fruitful, to take dominion over the earth, to reproduce images like him throughout the world. And that was the great commission that was given to mankind as the image of God to go into the world. And of course, you all know the story. Man sinned and chaos was introduced into the creation. And God began a process of recreation. And the resurrection, really, folks, is at the heart of that. And at the heart of the resurrection is the one who was resurrected, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So today we're going to talk about his perfect life. We all, I think most of us understand the death of Jesus, for, you know, forgiveness of sin, Jesus died for us. What we don't often talk about, and one of the things that I love about our theology, about Reformed theology, is the reality that Jesus also lived for us a perfect life of obedience. Look at the first scripture here from Romans chapter 5. And again, Romans 5 has a, has a context, and I hope that maybe you'll go back and read the entire chapter. And, and by the way, you need to read chapter 6 and 7 along with it. And it wouldn't hurt to read chapter 8 as well. And while you're at it, just read the whole book and be done with it. Because Paul is tying together a lot of these arguments. He's putting together a whole, a whole breadth of thought into this. But Here's chapter 5, this one verse. For as by one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, he's talking specifically about Adam, 
Many were made sinners. That's all the human race. He says, so also by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, what he's talking about is this this participation. One man sinned and plunged the race of humanity into ruin, Adam. And we all know the fruit of that disobedience. We live it every day. And we commit it every day. It's not like Adam did it and so therefore we have to do it. We do it of our own free will and volition. We choose to sin every time we sin. The woman saw the tree. Listen to this. The woman saw the tree that it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. She took... Now listen to this. This is almost literally right from Hebrew, the way that the... Listen to the words as they crash. It's like the author wanted you to get this. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. The eyes were open. They knew. They were naked. They sowed. They made. They heard. They hid. Do you hear it? Built into the language... They did it. She did it. He did it. They saw. The disobedience of Adam. We talked about it in our theology class earlier, and I promised the class that we would talk about this. What was the disobedience of Adam? Was it just taking a piece of fruit? No. He committed the sin. Eve committed the sin long before they took the fruit and ate it. They chose to do something, and if you read the narrative in Genesis chapter 3, it's very clear where they were. They were in paradise. Everything they could have possibly wanted was there. And on top of all that, they had perfect communion with Almighty God. He would come in the cool of the day and commune with them. But they were not satisfied. What is the disobedience of Adam? And scholars and theologians have identified it. They know what it is. The Bible says what it is. And it's the sin of idolatry. It's the sin that is beneath every sin. You know, when you think about sins that we commit, uh, let's say that, we, that we're talking uh, in a conversation and we choose to stretch the truth, make it a little bit more, we lie. Or exaggerate, you know, to make ourselves look a little bit better. Whatever we do, when we sin, there's something below that. A sin of idolatry. In other words, we're thinking to ourselves, you know, I want this person to really think well of me. I want to make them think more of me than I really am. We are bringing something else from the outside. Listen carefully because this will help you in every area of your life. It's on every page of the Bible, by the way. We're taking something and bringing it into our life and saying, I need this to be me. Now think of where that will take you. Take you to money. Take you to sex. It'll take you to alcohol. It'll take you to drugs. It'll take you to health food. Right? I touched the nerve. It'll take you to uh, uh, a political party. 
It'll take you all kinds of places. It'll take you into careers. It'll take you to where you're choosing a certain school over another school. And the only reason is because you'll have this on your resume. Not that there's anything wrong with it in and of itself, but you begin to rely on it. In other words, this makes me who I am. It becomes an identity. I can't be happy without this. I've given you this before. It's the best definition of idolatry that I've read. And I'm only taking a little portion. And it's from Stephen Charnock's uh, 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 Attributes of God. It's a huge book. It's this thick, really. I mean, it's unbelievable. And so I had to go to a lot of work to find this little quote out of that big, huge book. So I hope you'll appreciate it. Do you appreciate it? Okay, it's too bad we already took up the offering, right? I could have asked for a little extra... A man, I've I've shared this with you before, but listen again. Listen with ears to hear. A man may be said to make a thing his God when he acts as if something below God could make him happy without God or, now listen to this, or that God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. Do you see? Adam and Eve are in paradise and they're looking at the tree and the text says it. It looked good. It was desirable. There was nothing evil about the tree. The tree in and of itself was not bad. It was a good tree. The fruit on it was good. It was desirable to make one wise. The only problem with the tree was God said, I don't want you to know good and evil. I want you to know good. Or at least that's what we think. You only know good. But instead, they thought, boy, this would make us like God. This would give us something that we don't have. And they took the fruit, whatever it was. I don't know what you think it was. I know what it was, but I'm not going to tell you. Idolatry distorts our thinking. And I talked to you all, those of you that were in the theology class this morning, I talked to you about it. It distorts our thinking and it creates a delusion. A delusion. The delusion for Adam and Eve was that they could take fig leaves and sew them up and cover their nakedness. And you know, nakedness is a metaphor. It's a, uh, a, an analogy to sinfulness in itself. And so they thought they could cover. Now they did cover their nakedness with the fig leaves, did they not? Yes, they did. But they didn't cover their sin. It took God to cover their sin they couldn't possibly cover it with fig leaves, even though they may have actually been covered. So it distorted their thinking. And idolatry also did a second thing. And this is why this is so important, that a new Adam come, is because it created something which we call over-desire, to where they needed, now they had to, they were addicted to sin, and addicted to the idolatry. And so, think of your own personal experience. All of us are chronically looking for something that we can bring along with us into our lives, into God's presence, whatever. We want to bring something with us that will add to our standing with God. We failed in the tree, but we'll go find something else. It doesn't have to be the fruit in the tree anymore to get us in the good graces of God. It can be our performance. 
could be our law keeping, could be our sin. In other words, we say like the prodigal son, we say, I'm, forget God, I'm going to go out here and live any way I want to. And so we, we leave God and we leave the Father's house, or we're like the older brother who just gets more and more religious and thinks that that will make me acceptable. We do both. We take good things and make them into idols, and we take bad things and make them into idols. And we, we say, I can't, if I don't have this, then I'm not me. I'm not acceptable. I'm not acceptable to other people. I'm not acceptable to God. In Paul's theology, and in Reformed, for those of you that are familiar with our particular theology, Reformed theology, this is very high in the cone of certainty. Right, class? Remember? This is high in the cone of certainty. The life, the obedience of Messiah. Obedience high in the cone of certainty. Why? So that we could play the etudes of Chopin and we could participate in this perfect, absolute, genius righteousness that Jesus gave to us. Where Adam failed, Jesus did not fail. Where was Jesus when He faced the serpent? Wilderness. Where was Adam and Eve when they faced the serpent? Garden. Paradise. Jesus goes to wilderness. Adam and Eve are tempted one time with one thing. How many times was Jesus tempted? Three times. And if you really look at your Bible, many, many more times. It's just three that one time in those 40 days. And Jesus, when He came back from the wilderness, listen, this is, this is way high in the cone. He comes back from the wilderness after being, after being baptized by John. In, in the, he, he was baptized by John, and then He goes in the wilderness. And He comes back, and He goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. And a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Jesus said of His own self, this is His words, Jesus, My will is to do the will of Him who sent me and accomplish His work. I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The works the Father has given me to accomplish, I am doing. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I always do the things that please Him. No one has ever been able to say that. No human being has ever been able to say, I always do what pleases the Father. No one has had the accolade of heaven itself. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's a Scottish theologian that I was introduced to when I was in graduate school. His name is Henry Scugall. He's a Scottish theologian. He's written some really great stuff. And one of the things that I remember 
in reading from Henry Skugal is this. He said this, listen, the worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. Find out what someone loves and that will be the identity of that person. And what does the Bible tell us is our primary objective? What are we to do? The first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in so doing, you fulfill the entire law. You see, now you're playing the etudes of Chopin. When you enter into identifying with the second Adam, with this Adam, the one who pleased the Father, who did all things well, the one who perfectly obeyed, the one who perfectly, who lived a perfect life for us and as us. In theology, we call this the active obedience of Christ. It's one of the best things you can ever learn. Because we all go through our lives and we're so worried about, am I pleasing God? Am I pleasing God? Well, you know, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. But if you base your acceptance before God, if you base the way He loves you on your performance, what will happen? You'll never know His love. Never. Not a day in your life. You'll always be hither, thither, and yon when it comes to love. Does He love me? You'll be plucking the daisies. He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. Because of your performance. But if you begin to identify with the performance of Jesus Christ, you start to see that He has already accepted you. He loves you as much as He's ever going to love you. And He's pleased with you when you trust Him. And when you don't trust Him, He doesn't throw you away. In fact, He begins to annoy you. He begins to bug you. You start to feel a little bit uncomfortable about your sin. You start thinking, you wake up at night and you think, I should have done done that. Our conscience bothers us. How do you account for that? Because you're a good person? No, it's because the Holy Spirit is loving you, coming in close to you when you're far away, coming to you in the far country. The prodigal was in the far country and he came to himself. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. I had the privilege of studying under Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul. You all know, most of you know who R.C. Sproul is. And I can remember when he said this, and I'm going to quote him exactly. Listen. Because he said it to a room full of hyper-Calvinist Reformed people who believe in justification by faith alone, by grace alone, plus nothing. Right? Like you. And here's what he said. The only way any person is ever justified before God is the old-fashioned way. By works. But they're not your works, they are Christ's who submitted Himself at every point to the law of God. The New Testament describes Jesus as the new Adam. He is the new humanity who accomplishes what Adam failed to accomplish by one man's disobedience. The world is plunged into ruin 
by the other man's obedience, the law of God in all of its demands and in perfect conformity, Christ redeems His people by winning the blessings that God had promised to His his original creatures, pardon me, in and on their behalf. Abraham believed God and it was imputed or counted or credited to him as righteousness because Jesus obeyed the law. David was counted righteous because Jesus obeyed the law. I am counted righteous. I'm not righteous in and of myself. I'm counted righteous because Jesus obeyed the law in my place. And this is what we look at when we look at the obedience of Jesus. You see the disobedience of Adam, but you look at the obedience of Jesus and you see that He obeyed the law. Why then did Paul say, by grace you are saved through faith, this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why? Why would Paul contradict R.C. Sproul? That's kind of crazy. Well, they're not contradicting. In fact, the rest of R.C., I couldn't put his whole sermon in here. Then I would, well, you wouldn't need me. And I need the paycheck. No, R.C. goes on to say, the reason we say it's by grace, through faith, is because God was willing to put Jesus in our place, substitute Him for us, not just on the cross in His death, we'll talk about that next week, but in our life as well. So that the burden, the burden of being acceptable to God is on Christ. And we find our acceptance in Him. And understanding this does not cheapen grace. In fact, it takes grace into hyperdrive. If you understand the grace of God, you will want to obey Him. You will have motives. You will be willing to die before you would disobey your Savior. Do you understand that? Grace is not leniency. It's the opposite of leniency. Grace makes, makes obedience absolutely necessary. Otherwise, you don't understand grace. And you may not be living by grace. You may be still in your sins. That should frighten you if you're a Christian. You think, well, I'm just disobeying God whenever I want to. Willy-nilly, I disobey Him. I have needs. I have wants. I have things in my life. I'm going to do whatever. You don't understand the grace of God. You're lost. Come to Jesus. Christians do not make excuses for their sins. They put their sins to death. Right? Somebody say amen. Help me out here. Yeah, we put our sins to death. We look them right in the eye. We kiss the demon on the lips. And we say no. And if we have to do it a hundred times a day, we say no and no and no. And we go back at it again and again. We are people who deeply and deeply repent. Because we love the law of God. We love obedience. And we're willing to go to all extremes. Doesn't mean it just goes away. I don't know anybody that just goes away. I wish it would go away. But they don't go away. 
But God has given you the Holy Spirit so that you can continue to go back at those things every day of your life and say, no, I'm going to come back again. I'm going to return to the Father again. Not on my terms, but on His. And His terms are the obedience of Jesus Christ, the second Adam who creates a new humanity. That's us. We should be deeply aware of our sins and at the same time not let them define us. Do you understand the difference? It's incredible. The power that is in this is incredible if you will learn to live in what the third part of this is, and that's called the great exchange. Theologians have talked about this, the imputation of righteousness. Now let me explain this very quickly. I wish we had more time, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to answer questions after. But imputation means that what God does is He takes like, like this. Here's my phone. And uh, I can go with my thumb or my finger and I can go to my bank right now and I can take money. You know how that works, right? I can actually transfer money with my thumb from one place to another. Normally, it's from one place to another place for me because I'm overdrawn, right? But every once in a while, I'll send a little bit to one of my kids, my boys, you know, because they also are overdrawn in <laughs> more ways than you know. <laughs> so we transfer money. Nobody questions it. There it goes. And this is what imputation, it's the Greek word logizomai. It's worth knowing this word in Greek. It's worth looking at it. Logizomai. What it means is crediting or, right, or uh, uh, reckoning, attributing to, in all of its fullness, one thing to another. It's the transfer, the great exchange. And in Reformed theology, in our theology of, of uh, the Protestant Reformation, and particularly uh, the, the, the little strain of our, our world, we believe in double imputation. We believe that not only are our sins put on Jesus on the cross, but that His righteousness in His perfect life of obedience is transferred to us so that God is no longer dealing... If you are truly a Christian, if you've given your heart to Jesus Christ and you are saying notice and you're, you're putting up a fight against that old man, that old nature in you, if you're working at it each day, coming to church, being with other Christians, getting out into the world, digging down deep into the Scripture, living in the Spirit, what, the, what Paul calls walking by the Spirit, if you're doing that then you're going to be confronting your sin every single day and the only power that you can hope for is this exchange. If you're resorting to your own power or what you are and who you are, you will always be living in doubt. Do you understand? I'm not quite getting it right. But if you resort each time to Him, to Jesus Christ, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. God, out of pure grace, has told the human race, all of us, I know that you are dust. I know you're struggling with sin. I know what happened to you in the garden. I was there. I called out to you. Where are you? I didn't say, I see you. I said, where are you? 
I extended the hand of friendship to you, my creatures, and I want you to come back to me on the basis of what the seed of the woman will do to the serpent and not you. And we should be jumping up and down and clicking our heels that he's willing to do that for us, right? To love us that way and say, I will accept you. God, out of pure grace and love, accepts all, all who will simply put their trust in Jesus Christ in His work. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In other words, you're no longer relying on your performance to be acceptable to God. You're relying on the Spirit's work in you every day of your life to be acceptable before God. And that will change your entire frame of mind. It will give you the power to come back to Jesus even after you've committed the most horrendous sin. And look, I've told you all very honestly, I've been there. I've been in the gutter. I know what it is. And so do you. We all know what it is. Let me close with this. And again, listen to this. I'm going to read you a, 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 an excerpt from The Everlasting Righteousness by Horatius Bonar. And I hope you'll just wake up, pay attention for the next 20 seconds. Listen to this. Amazing. God is satisfied with Christ's obedience He is well pleased with His perfections. And when we, crediting His testimony to that obedience and that righteousness, when we do that, when we consent, listen to the words of Bonar, when we consent to be treated by God on the footing of Christ's perfections, then He is satisfied and well-pleased with us. God is satisfied, more than satisfied with Christ's fulfilling of the law which man had broken. For never had that law been so fulfilled in all its parts as it was in the life of the God-man. So satisfied is God with this divine law-fulfilling and with Christ Jesus our Lord who so gloriously fulfilled it that He is willing to pass from or cancel all the law's sentences against us. And much more. Here's where it really gets good. And much more. Not only pass over the sentence of God against us, the judgment against us, but He says, and much more to deal with us as partakers of or identified with this law fulfilling. If we will but agree to give up all personal claims to His divine favor, in other words, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. If we're willing to do that, but give up all personal claims to His divine favor and accept the claims of Him, Jesus, who has magnified the law and made it honorable. 
It was by representation or substitution of the just for the unjust. The just one for the unjust in his life, not just his death, that we are enabled to be acquitted before God. And R.C., in his great way, said it like this, not only does Christ take our sins, our debts, our demerits, but He gives us His obedience, His assets, His merit. That's the place in which you stand. Not so that you can go out and sin willy-nilly, but so that you can bear down and obey Him even at the cost of your own life and everything in it. So that nothing, nothing in this life can enslave you ever again. Christ for us. One of the the great mottos of the Reformation. Christ for us. Christ as us. Christ in us. And Christ through us to the world. Do you see what He does? Let's give Him thanks. Father, we thank You for this great righteousness, the work of Jesus, who did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to do it so well and so perfectly that it would cover an entire race of people who would simply trust Him And we pray, Father, that you would let us, help us, allow us to enter into that grace, knowing that he has done it for us. And that will give us the strength to hold nothing back. There's nothing that we, who would want to hold anything back from a God who would do this for him or her? Help us, we pray. Save us and have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen.